morning, Bridge. How you guys doing this morning? These guys are good. You guys, not so sure. So good to see you this morning. So, have you guys been watching any of the Summer Olympics? Anybody enjoy the Summer Olympics? I've enjoyed a lot of them. It's amazing to me how hard those athletes work for how many years to finally get into a race, and the decision is made by a tenth of a hundredth of a second or something. And it's phenomenal to me to watch the kind of effort that goes into all of that. But the hardest sports for me to watch are the ones that are not quite that objective. I mean, the guy that runs the fastest wins the gold, right? But uh, the, the ones where there's a group of judges that sits over here and they watch everybody do their thing and then they get to decide who gets the gold. D does that one bother you? It doesn't bother me quite as, uh, it didn't used to bother me quite as much as it does now until the Winter Olympics a few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, 2002, the Canadian figure skaters came out and, uh, and did this amazing program, flawless program, and then the Russian skaters came out, and they were good. I mean, obviously, they were very good, uh, but they did make some mistakes. But the Russians wound up getting the gold instead of the Canadians. And there was a big stir about that, and people were appealing it and all that. Two days later, the French judge came out and admitted that she had been under political pressure in advance of the event to give the gold to the Russians. Do you guys remember this? Look it up. 2002 Winter Olympics. And... Uh, and so they just threw everything up in the air. Two days later, the French judge came back and said, no, 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 I wasn't really under pressure. And she recanted her whole story. The Olympic Committee now is in a quandary. And, and so the only solution they came up with is to come up with two sets of gold. So the Russians and the Canadians both got the gold medal. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me because the problem wasn't that they know who earned the gold. It was that someone had prejudged the event. They had decided the outcome before the event ever took place. I'm slowing down because I want you to get that. The problem isn't that they didn't know who won the gold. The problem is that one of the people had prejudged the event. In other words, making judgments are fine. That's a judge's job. They're supposed to decide who gets first, second, third place, and all that. And we may not like their conclusions, but we, as long as as the conclusions are based on actual performance, after they've done the performance, and as long as there's no favoritism in the decision that's been made, then we accept their conclusion because no one has prejudged. It's okay to judge appropriate. It's not okay to prejudge the outcome. Am I making sense? Is this making sense to you guys? And you're sitting down there saying, well, of course that makes sense. But what on earth does that have to do with the sermon series that, that we're in? That's, uh, here's the answer. That's what prejudice is, plain and simple. Prejudice is pre-judging. It's forming an opinion before the facts are known. Or it's making a pre-judgment based on some external factor. That's what prejudice is, pure and simple. And nobody thinks it's okay. But let's be honest, we've all been affected by it. Hello, are you out there? We've all been affected by it. Some of us have been uh, hurt by prejudices. Some of us have been perpetrators of hurts because of prejudices that we carry. And I say all of us, on one level or another, have been impacted by prejudices that have been foisted on us, bondages and baggages that we all carry. Pastor Farrell has been teaching us now for almost a month. This series has been calling Church Snob. 
and, uh, and he's been challenging us at the very core of who we are to, to <coughs> take a look at the people around us the way God looks at people around us. God does not play favorites. He, he loves everyone unconditionally. Jesus Christ died on Calvary for all people. He does not judge by superficial means or simple externals. He looks at the heart. But Pharaoh's also been challenging us to be a church uh, that's known for not building barriers, but in fact building bridges. And in fact, he says, that's a good name for a church. We ought to think about that. Uh, the simple truth is we all have to work hard if we're going to do that. So today I want to wrap the series up. Pastor Farrell is home watching online. Could everybody say hey to Pastor Farrell? Hey, Pastor Farrell, so good to see you guys. Hey, he is, uh, he's been sick. He's doing a lot better. Thursday morning he told me the, the fever broke and you know the big sweats and all that. So he started the mending, but he's still coughing every few minutes. So he, he spared us from that. He's home watching online. But let's wrap it up today by doing a couple of things. First of all, I want us to get honest about some of the prejudices, the common ones that we all have to deal with, okay? I just wish put it out there. Let's be honest about what they are. And then far more importantly, let's lean into what are we gonna do to bring these things down? What are we gonna do to make a difference? You gotta face them to deal with them, but then what are we gonna do to deal? And then before we leave here this morning, I'm gonna ask you to join me in a prayer that says, God, we're gonna make a difference. We're trusting you to help us do exactly that. So let's get into it. You ready? First of all, let's identify some of the common prejudices that we all have to deal with. Uh, and I thought of seven. You think of some more, I'm sure. But I thought of seven. Let's look at them together. First one I thought of is socioeconomic prejudice. You know what I'm talking about. Farrell's talked about it during the series a good bit. And he's taking us to the book of James. And James sets up the scene in the church scene where the apparent rich man comes in and he gets treated very specially. And then the poor guy comes in and he's, he's told to stand over there. And what did James say about that? James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Come on. Don't show favoritism. He said, don't do that. But he doesn't just say don't. You go on reading the chapter in verse 8, James chapter 2, verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you... What? You sin. You understand what he's saying? He's saying that when you allow prejudice to define the way you act, you're not just offending the person that you're prejudiced toward, you are offending the very holiness of God. It's a sin. And we have to recognize what that is, and we have to determine that we're not going to do it. So when it comes to socioeconomic prejudice, most of you would say, oh, well, you know, we got that one. We don't have any of those. That's not a big deal for us. Good, wonderful. So on the way home from church today, you get to the intersection, and somebody pulls up in a car beside you that's half your age, dressed all gangsta, car's worth about four times what your car is. It's vibrating from the sounds of a $4,000 stereo. It is not going to cross your mind he's probably a drug dealer it's not it's not gonna you're not gonna think that based on those because we don't have to worry about that one right right how about ethnic or racial prejudice is that a big deal hello are you out there is this microphone on we're getting real today guys i mean we'd like to think this is past but it's not hello i mean if you're white 
odds are you grew up in a culture that taught you to distrust blacks. And if you're black, you grew up in a culture that taught you to distrust whites. And then with the Hispanic community that's moving in and into our area and settling here, there's a whole other level of stuff that's related to race. It's just, it's huge, guys. But hear me, most of the mistrust is based on stereotypes. And yeah, you can find examples of whites and blacks and Hispanics who are doing terrible things. It's just that's humanity and sinful nature of man. But at the end of the day, most of us don't really have a clue about each other's cultures. We're just making decisions based on external factors and superficial stereotypes. we got to break the back of that kind of stuff, but we have to face it first. The third one is intellectual prejudice. Does that one exist? You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about well-educated people who look down on uneducated people and uneducated people who, who call educated people eggheads. You know, you know that kind of stuff. My favorite story on that subject is, uh, I'm told to be a true story, during the Depression days in America <coughs> when a man uh, who grew up on the farm outside of Paducah, Kentucky, finally decided he had to go into the city to get work. He was starving. And when he got to Paducah, the only job offering that he could find was janitor at the First Baptist Church. So he went in and he interviewed with the pastor. At the end of the interview, the pastor said to him, you know, you'd be perfect for the job. I'm really excited you've come in. The job is yours. All I need you to do is fill out this application. And the man said, well, that's going to be a problem because I never learned to read and write. The pastor said, oh, my well, that is a problem because you're, you're going to have to read and write to do the job. I mean, you're going to have you know, supply lists and you're going to have vendors you have to sign things for. And I, I, I'm sorry, I, if you don't read and write, I can't give you the job. Pastor, I really, really need a job and I'm a hard worker. He said, oh, I'm sure you are, but I can't give you the job if you can't read and write. Uh, tell you what, somebody just donated some apples. I hate for you to leave empty-handed. Let me give you this bag of apples. The guy takes the bag and he leaves and he's grumbling. He said, I want a bag of apples. I wanted a job. He went out and he's standing on the street corner wonder, wondering what he's going to do. And somebody stops in the car and says, hey, are you selling those apples? The guy said, yeah, I'll sell you some. So he sells the apples. By the end of the day, he sells every one of them. Cursed to him, I think I'll just take the money and go buy two bags of apples. And so he did. The next day, he sells all of them. In time, he sets up a fruit stand on that corner. Eventually, he gets a relationship with some of the area farmers, and he turns it into a vegetable stand, a whole open market. In time, he buys the lot and builds a grocery store. In time, some of his friends said to him, you know, you really ought to put your life savings in a bank instead of in a safe in your bedroom closet. Depression people like to do that kind of stuff, you know. He said, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I will. So he goes down to the bank with a satchel full of money, <coughs> and he says to the banker, I, I need to open an account. Banker says, sure, I'd be glad to help you out. Just, all I need you to do is fill out this application. And he said, well, that's going to be a problem because I never learned to read and write. No problem at all. I'd be glad to fill out the application for you. You can just make your mark at the end. So he's filling it out, and he got down to the blank where he said, well, how much is the initial deposit in your account? And the man said, well, i got a million dollars in this satchel right here. And the banker went, whoa, you got a million dollars as the opening deposit? I, I got to ask, if you did that without reading and writing, where would you be if you had learned to read and write? He said, I'd be the janitor over at the First Baptist Church.
Don't be fooled by degrees. Sometimes smart doesn't come with a lot of formal education to it. But we tend to be prejudiced about that kind of stuff. How about gender prejudice? Is that still around? You heard the story about the lady who stopped at an accident. She was busy helping the victim on the ground. And, and a man came running up and kind of brushed her aside and said, Out of the way, little lady, I have formal training in first aid. Step back. And he gets down over the victim and she steps back and stands there for a second and says, Oh, okay. But when you get to the part of your first aid training where it says, Call a doctor, I'll be right here. I'll be ready. We've come a long way, but let's be honest, guys. Let a woman succeed in her career, and somebody will ask the question, how did she really get the promotion? Let a man decide that he wants to be a nurse or a secretary, and somebody will say, what's that about? Right? And we still live in a day where a woman who does the same work with the same amount of production makes 78% of what a man makes. Those are the realities of our times, we can't deal with it until we face it. How about age prejudice? Does that exist? When young people look at older people and say, well, you don't know what's going on anymore. And old people look at young people the same way. Like if you went into surgery and one of them young doctors comes in and everything in you wants to say, dude, you are not, you don't look old enough to operate machinery, much less operate on me. <laughs> Okay, that was me. I'm actually the one who had surgery, and I actually said to my wife, he's an old enough to operate machinery. He's not cutting on me. Not going to happen. Age prejudice is a reality. How about physical prejudice? You ever looked at a person's body type, strong or weak, tall or short, large or small, and drew conclusions about their level of discipline? For the record, round is a shape. I'm just saying, it's a shape. How about religious prejudice? Does that exist? I love it since moving back to Goldsboro last year, uh, becoming part of the Bridge family. We, uh, you know, every time I meet somebody in town now, inevitably I'll turn the conversation around to, do you have a church home? And, and, uh, and eventually they'll ask me where I go to church. And, and I'll say the Bridge. And I always love the responses. Most of them are positive. But every now and then there's one that goes, oh. I heard they have a disco ball over the stage there. <laughs> yeah, man, you want to come see? <laughs> uh, the church that Kim and I pastored in Chesapeake, Virginia, before moving home, uh, we had a Baptist pastor that uh, worshiped with us for a while. He had been pastoring, and he left that church for some reason uh, and then didn't have a church for a season, so he was with us. And he told me one day that he had interviewed in one of the churches out in the county and uh, in the course of the interview, they asked him, where are you going to church in the interim? And he said, well, I've been going to community church. And, and one of the guys uh, said, oh, that's the church where they wear flip-flops to church. He knew he was not going to get that job. <laughs> we became the flip-flops church. Never mind that in both churches, hundreds of people are coming to know Christ and growing up in Christ and becoming all Christ intended for them to be. Never mind that any of that's going on. They do rock and roll and wear flip-flops. That church can't be right. Hello? And should I throw in just to be careful here? Let's be careful that we don't do the same thing to the more traditional churches that quite often are filled with people who love Jesus with all their hearts. 
we're just as guilty as they are. That's the reason, one of the things that I love about this place is that we're always saying they're great churches. Thank you for choosing this one, but some great churches. Somebody asked me recently, so I hear you guys say they're great churches. We ought to pray for them. What constitutes a great church? Is it the translation of the Bible they use or the style of music they use? No, 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 no. We don't care about that stuff. What we care about, are, are they preaching Jesus? Are they preaching the reality that we are lost, desperately in need of a Savior, and Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and rose from the grave, and if we will turn to him, he will give us eternal life. If they're preaching that, they're a great church. We ought to be praying for them. Can I get a hand clap of that? Amen. That's just seven prejudices that I thought of. You can probably think of a whole bunch more, but the bottom line is this. Whatever form it takes, prejudice is wrong. It's a sin, according to Scripture. Norman Pert says it this way, as subtle as it may be, when you make a decision about the value or significance about a person you don't know, without the facts, for whatever the external reason is, the Bible calls it prejudice. And to God, that's a very big deal. Now, you can agree with Dr. Pert or disagree. I will tell you that he has a doctorate, educational prejudice. I would tell you that he is a professor at Carolina. Some of you like him and others don't already. I can tell you that he's African-American. That colors some opinions. And I can tell you that he's a pastor. All of those external things that mean nothing about who this man is doesn't change the fact that this is true. But we can allow ourselves to be influenced about truth based on what we presuppose to be true about certain people in certain walks of life. The Bible says it just isn't right. Do you understand why? I mean, do you understand why prejudice is such a big deal to God? It's because at its core, no matter what the prejudice is, at at its core is selfishness. At its core is self-centeredness. It's thinking about myself more highly than I do others, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible says. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus Let me bring this to a conclusion so we can move into our next segment. The simple truth is God's picture of the church is not a church that buys in to the prejudices that are defined by a self-centered culture. God's picture of a church is one where prejudice is honestly dealt with, but instead of building barriers that separate people, we're building bridges that bring healing. Can I get an amen in this house? That's God's picture of the church. So let's shift gears. How do we get there? How do we get there? First of all, we need to understand some biblical principles, and then we got some action steps, okay? First of all, there are four things that the Bible says about the church tearing down these walls, removing these barriers. Number one, our master modeled reconciliation. Who's our master? His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus modeled reconciliation for us, and there were two primary ways that he did it. First of all, the first one might surprise you a little bit. Jesus was born into a multi-ethnic lineage. 
don't know if you ever thought about that or not, but it amazes me the percentage of Christians who somehow believe the Bible prohibits multiracial marriage. And they love to cite passages like Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 3, when the Lord your God brings you into the land and you're entering to possess and drives out before you many nations the Hittites and Gergesites and Amorites and Canaanites and Perizzites and Hivites and Jebusites and Gazuntites and Termites and Parasites and I just want to see if you're awake. Do, come on, do not intermarry with them. Sounds pretty clear to me, right? And it is clear when you read verse 4. What does verse 4 say? For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. The prohibition is not against intermarriage, interracial marriage. It's about interfaith marriage. It's about believers marrying unbelievers. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 14, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common, or what fellowship can light have with darkness? It's clear. The Bible gives lots of examples of multiracial marriage. Like Moses uh, was married to an Ethiopian lady. And Exodus 18 makes it clear that she and her whole father's house served the Lord. And if you're wondering if it was okay for them not to like that marriage, when Miriam, Moses' sister, grumbled about it, she got leprosy. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, that's what happened to her, okay? Book of Ruth, Pastor Farrell taught us not too long ago, is about a Moabite that married a Jew. In Romans chapter, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, Ruth said to Naomi, don't force me to leave you, don't make me go home. Where you go, I go. Where you live, I'll live. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Eventually, because Naomi said, okay, you can come with me. Because, because of that last phrase, your God is my God, you can go with me. She eventually married Boaz. Together they had the son Obed, who had a son Jesse, who had a son David, who became king of Israel, all of whom are in the lineage of Jesus himself. Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute who lived in Jericho, helped the Israelites to win the war, worshiped God, and married a Jew. And she's in the lineage, too, of Jesus himself. The bottom line is that intermarriage is not about whether you came from the same past. It's about whether you're going to the same future. And that's on the basis of whether you have the same faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus' very birth modeled reconciliation but he also modeled it in terms of the way he ministered he ministered across ethnic lines I'll give you so many examples from scriptures at one point he described a roman soldier that was hated by the jews as having more faith than anybody else in israel he healed a canaanite woman on one occasion he delivered a gentile from a demonic spirit at one point most profoundly he went to samaria which was a region that all of the jews avoided they hated the samaritans and so they would walk a day or two around just to avoid going through that region he intentionally went there and when he got there he went directly to the well which was kind of the hangout joint where everybody went so he could engage them 
John chapter 4, verse 7, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus asked her for a drink. The woman was surprised that the Jew would ask a despised Samaritan for anything. Usually they wouldn't even speak to them. And she remarked about this to Jesus. He replied, if you only knew what a wonderful gift God has for you and who I am, you would ask me for some living water. He not only ministered to her there, but she became his chief evangelist in the region. She went into town and said, y'all got to come meet this guy that I met. And the whole town came to Christ because of her. The first thing you've got to know about the Bible and prejudice is that Jesus, our master, modeled reconciliation, both in his lineage and in his ministry. Got it? Ready to move on? Second thing you got to know is that our mission includes all cultures. Our mission includes all cultures. Here's our marching orders. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20. Therefore, and go make disciples of everyone who looks like you, dresses like you, likes the same school you like, smells the same as you. Stop me when I get to the right phrase. Therefore, go and make disciples of what does all include? Farrell tells us this. All includes all nations. That word nations is an interesting word. Jesus, of course, spoke Koine Greek when he was on earth, and the New Testament primarily was originally written in Greek. It's been translated into English for us. The original Greek word for nations is actually the word ethnos, from which we get the word ethnic. So when we talk about ethnic groups, we're talking about the nations of the world. And who are we called to make disciples of? Every ethnic group. That's our call. That's our challenge. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded, and I will go with you because I already modeled it for you by going across those Lines. Jesus even laid out the strategy for doing it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. I don't know if, how much you know about Holy Land geography, but you understand what they're saying here? Jerusalem was the hometown, so we're talking about people that live close to you and are very much like you, right? Judea was the surrounding area. We're talking about the Mount Olive campus, starting in just a few weeks, right? And whatever other campuses we start in the days ahead. Samaria, remember what we just said about Samaria? That was a different culture that they tended to stereotypically be prejudiced toward. He said, reach them too. And then ultimately, all nations go to the ends of the earth. Do you know one of the reasons that I love this place so much is that that's our model for ministry? I mean, we're doing our best to reach Wayne County and Johnston County, and we're doing our best to, to grow this church. What we do here isn't about growing a church. We're not here to see how big we can get. We're here because there's so many people who desperately need Jesus. We can't stop till they all do. We're doing our best to reach as many people as we can. Come on, that's worth an applause. But there are people that come into our sphere of influence that don't live close enough to get here regularly. So what are we going to do? Well, we're just going to go where they are and plant one there. Goldsboro, Mount Olive, who knows what's coming, right? 
Samaria, we're beginning to watch our congregation become a multiracial congregation, and we're thrilled about that. And I'm not suggesting every church should be multiracial, but that's, we welcome that. We're thrilled about that. We want to look like our community and reach the people that live in our community and build bridges to everybody in our community. And then ultimately, every time you give to the Giving Life Fund, part of that money goes to the 30 missionaries that we support all over the world. That's the strategy for the bridge. Because our master modeled reconciliation and our mission includes all cultures. The third reason that we have to tear these walls down and break these barriers down is that our mark of identity is unity. The thing that's supposed to identify the church is unity. Would you say to the average person around you that that is the mark of identification of the modern church? Hello? I'd say no. We tend to be better known for what we're against than what we're for. And all too often we're against each other as much or more as we are anybody else. That's tragic. It's particularly tragic when you realize that the most poignant prayer that Jesus prayed, which was the prayer that he prayed just before Calvary. Put yourself in the moment. Jesus knows that he's about to be arrested. He knows that he's about to be uh, taken through a series of of humiliations and all-night illegal trials. He knows that he's going to be beaten to within an inch of his life. He knows they're going to force him to carry a cross up that hill called Golgotha. And he knows they're going to crucify him there. And before that all starts, he prays. If you know that's about to happen to you, do you think that would be one of those now I lay me down to sleep prayers? <laughs> this would be one of those, oh God, here's what's really on my heart kind of prayers. Am I right? We wouldn't care if we got the King James these and thou's got right. We don't care how we said it. We would just be pouring it out, buddy. It would just be flowing out of us. And you know one of the things that Jesus prayed for in that prayer? Unity. John 17, 20. My prayer is all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in them. May they also be in us that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you're in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. May they be brought to complete unity. Somebody said, that's the one prayer Jesus prayed that has not yet been answered. So you see, we can be different and still be unified. We have to be. Our master prayed desperately for it. And yes, there are risks involved. And yes, it takes courage to break those barriers down. Yes, it can be difficult at times. There can be costs associated with it. But somebody somewhere has to be the one that reaches a hand across the barrier and says, I'm not going to be prejudiced. 
I'm going to break it. I was reading just the other day about Dr. Billy Graham and his ministry, and I ran across a little-known uh, fact uh, that in 1953, three years before Martin Luther King came on uh, the scene and ten years before the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Billy Graham stunned Chattanooga, Tennessee. They had a huge crusade there, and that night before the first service began, Billy stepped to the stage and he realized that there were, there were lines, ropes that had been put up to separate the whites from the blacks. And before Billy preached, he walked off of the stage and he went down and said, we won't be having these ropes anymore. We're going we're gonna, to uh, break those barriers down. Now, that may not seem like a big deal now, but in 1953, that took guts. In 1953, it was a courage statement that said, we're going to do what we can do to make sure that the prayer that Jesus prayed, Father, make them one, can be answered in our world. Hear me, guys. Jesus gave the entire known, unbelieving world the right to decide whether we are, in fact, followers of Jesus Christ on the basis of this one issue. It's what he said. John chapter 13, verse 35. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you got your theology right, that you got your doctrine lined up, that you play the right music in your church, that what? If you love one another. Our master modeled reconciliation. Our mission includes all cultures. Our mark of identity has to be unity. Unity and diversity, but unity. And then number four, our measure of success is when we finally achieve one kingdom under one king. That's our goal. That's the image that defines us. I mentioned a moment ago, nothing we do around here is about growing a church. Yeah, we see this church getting bigger because the needs are bigger. But we're not working to build a bigger church here. We're building to expand Revelation chapter 5 and the scene that's going to take place there. It is the conclusion of all time. Jesus has stepped out center stage. He's been identified as the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the only one who has the right to open the book of redemption where your name and your name and your name and your name and my name are written, the only one who can say, you can come in because your name's in the book. And all the saints of all the ages have gathered to worship him Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, and they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and, there's that word, nation, ethnos, ethnic group. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth every tongue and every tribe and every ethnic group assembled there i'm not saying that every church has to be a multi-ethnic church but i'm saying if we're going to gather there on that great day maybe we ought to practice today come on If, if people of every 
socioeconomic group and every race and every education level and every age and every gender and every physical dimension and every denomination that serves Jesus Christ is going to be there. Shouldn't we be building bridges to them now? And stop prejudging. Really get to know one another. I've got to wrap this up. The question is, how do we get there? The reality are, is that we've been taught some of these prejudices. How do we get there? I think there's three things we have to do. I'm going to tell you quickly, and then I'm going to ask you to join me in a pray, prayer, and we're going to pray these things together before we leave here today. Number one is we've got to look beyond the externals. We have to make up our minds. We're going to look beyond the externals. Pharaoh read this passage to us earlier in the series, 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I just wonder what kind of bridges you could build at work tomorrow. If you start looking at your coworkers, the way the Lord looks at them, you might be surprised by what you find. Number two, we've got to learn to celebrate diversity. We've got to learn to celebrate diversity. We've got to break out of our comfort zone, be intentional about building relationships with people that are different than we are. Maybe they're socially different or physically different or racially different or whatever it is. Take a chance. Stretch your horizon. Don't insist that everybody around you be just like you. Break out of your comfort zone and watch God do something amazing as you find unity in the diversity that's there. I'm not suggesting we become cookie cutter, we all be alike. I'm not talking about uniformity. I'm talking about unity in diversity. We had a pastor on staff at Community Church who made an appointment, came in to see me one day, and he said, Pastor Jim, I, I, I need a few weeks off. Really? Are, are you okay, Rick? He said, yeah, I am, kind of, sort of, but uh, boy, your message on that, this subject really spoke to my heart that last week, and I've been struggling for a week now, and, and I have to do, I'm, I'm a bigot. I'm a racist, and I have to do something about it. I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I've already asked the Lord to forgive me. That was the first thing. I asked the Lord to forgive me. Second thing I did is I went and found an African-American pastor just down the street, and I went and confessed to him who I was, and I asked him to forgive me. And then I asked him to help me break that cycle. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to go to church there for the next six weeks, and I'm going to learn what I don't know, and I'm going to pray that God will change my heart. The last I heard from Pastor Rick, he was a missionary to Chad in Africa because God changed his heart. Now, I'm not suggesting to all of you that God's going to call you to be missionaries to Africa, but it may well be that he's calling you to join Pastor Jimmy in some of the outreach things that we do that cuts across some of these barriers so that we can build bridges to people. If we're going to build bridges instead of walls, we've got to look beyond the externals. We've got to learn to celebrate diversity, and ultimately, we've got to develop a kingdom vision. We've got to start pe seeing people through that kingdom vision, that idea of, of how God looks at people. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither 
Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one. How? In Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. That's the vision that we start seeing people in. When they come to know Christ, we see them as brothers and sisters. We see them as family. We see them as Christ himself. i got to close, but i got to ask before I close, what's it going to take for healing to take place in your heart in this area? Will it take uh, heart bypass surgery, maybe double bypass surgery, triple? Maybe you got more than one prejudice to deal with. But the challenge is clear, 1 John 4, 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brothers we've got our marching orders before we close i don't know if if you guys remember some of you will perhaps the movie remember the titans it was based on a true story from northern virginia that took place 35 years ago when segregation in america was at its height and schools were beginning to be integrated And the coach of that school, the football coach of that school, found himself for the first time with a team that was fully integrated with whites and blacks. And it was an uphill battle to try to bring the races together and bring a team together. In time, a lot of hard work and effort, uh, they began to see each other through different sets of eyes. Before we pray, I want to show you just a little short clip from that movie. Let me set it up for you right quick. They've just won the regional championship. They're going to the state championship next week. And one of their star players has just been in a car accident. And the team has just found out that he's paralyzed from the waist down. Let's check this video out. How you doing, son? He ain't all right. He all right. How's he doing? Not too good. Not too good. Now, how's he doing? How bad is it? How bad is it? He's paralyzed from the waist down. Don't say that to me. Don't say that to me. Sorry, Mr. Dick. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He doesn't want to see anybody but you, Julius. Yes, ma'am. You are strong. Yes, ma'am. Those tears are not going to make my boy walk again. Only Ken's allowed in here. Alice, are you blind? Don't you see the family resemblance? That's my brother. Oh, man. You think I look banged up? You should see my Camaro. 
Man, I sure am sorry, man. I should have been there with you. What are you talking about? You would have been in the bed right next to me. You can't be hurt like this. I was afraid of you, Julius. I only saw what I was afraid of. And I don't know, I was only hating my brother. <laughs> I tell you what, though. Um, when all this is over, and you're gonna move out the same neighborhood together. Okay, and um, we'll get old, we will get fat. It ain't gonna be all this black-white between us. <laughs> Left side. Strong side. Our world desperately needs somebody to build a bridge to break down the walls that are dividing us. With the violence that it's in our streets, cops are being shot just because they're in uniform. It's profound the things that are going on in our nation. Somebody has got to finally stop and recognize that at the end of the day, we all have four things in common. We all bleed the same color blood. We all have a deep longing for purpose and meaning in life, that our one and only lives have some sense of purpose. We all have a need to love and to be loved. And most importantly, the one thing that every man, woman, and child on this planet woke up having in common today is we all desperately need Jesus. Somebody has got to build a bridge. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it by praying that God will give us the courage to look beyond the externals. We've got to pray that God will give us the wisdom to celebrate our differences rather than let them separate us. And we've got to pray that God will give us the faith to develop a kingdom mentality so that we're preparing for that great day when we sing around the throne of God. I'm going to ask you before we close to bow your head with me and close your eyes. We're going to close in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to be still with me right now for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to pray that prayer with me. You can pray it silently. You can pray it aloud, however you want to do it. Pray it in your own words if you want, but let it go something like this. Father, I'm sorry for the prejudices that I have allowed to linger in my heart. Forgive me. Help me to be a bridge builder, not a barrier maker. Give me the courage to look beyond the externals. Are you praying, guys? Give me the wisdom to celebrate 
diversity rather than be separated by it. And give me the faith that I will see my brother and my sister through kingdom eyes the way you see them. And I pray above all that I will be an agent of helping your prayer to be answered. Father, make them one as you and I are one that the world may believe. Father, you know who's praying across this room. People that are watching online right now, you know the prayers that we're praying. You know the struggles in our hearts. I pray for healing. I pray for help. I pray for strength. And I pray that we leave this place challenged by your word and empowered by your spirit to make a difference in our communities, in our workplaces, in our schools, to be bridge builders and not barrier builders. In Jesus' name, amen.